gospel lesson for today, the second Sunday after Pentecost, comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13 and 18 through 26. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. While he was saying these things to them, Suddenly, a leader came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her, and she will live. Jesus got up and followed him with his disciples. Then suddenly, a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak, for she said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Instantly, the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the leader's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And the report of this spread throughout that district. The Gospel of the Lord. Folks, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. There's one type of movie that I really kind of get a charge out of, and it really sort of makes me chuckle or it makes me laugh when I pay attention to it. And this is movies that start off in a setting, oftentimes present day, and then they end up in the future. And they depict life in the future, which, of course, none of us have any idea where that's going to be. But what's, what's really funny to me is when we back up to movies that came out maybe 20 or 30 years ago, and the future is a time that we've either already made it to or it's coming right up. And I like to just think about, well, boy, they missed that one entirely. Now, I got a couple of different examples of this that, that come to mind. The first one is Back to the Future Part 2. Now, this one came out back in the late 90s or excuse me, the late 80s. And in Back to the Future Part 2, they go forward to 2015. So we've actually already passed this in reality. And it's funny to think about some of the various aspects that in that movie that came out 30-odd years ago, what they thought was going to be, including flying cars and skateboards called hoverboards that have no wheels and they just hover. Pretty sure we don't have either one of those at the moment. But there's another movie that I'm thinking about, one that perhaps takes a little bit more precedence. And this is a movie, it's an action movie that came out back in the early 90s. It's called Demolition Man. And the setting of this one is interesting. Now, this one is very, very sci-fi. It doesn't so much have to do with time travel as it does just a time jump. But in this movie, which opens in the late 90s, at this point, Science has already figured out how to cryogenically freeze a person for an indeterminate amount of time so that they can be thawed out and live later. And it's actually a punishment for criminals. And the main individual is actually goes through this situation. It's actually, it's, it's 
uh, Sylvester Stallone, if that tells you anything, it's an action movie, and it's a sci-fi movie. But in this situation, they then jump forward quite a few years to the year 2032. So we're not quite there yet, but we're pretty close. Now, in that depiction of this is what the future is going to be like, there are some things that might be kind of accurate. For instance, they have self-driving cars. And you know what? We're really not very far away from that, are we? But there are some other aspects that are wildly different. And one of the things, just in general, when I think about this idea of what will the future be like, is the way that they depict changes in language. Now, in this particular movie, greetings and conversations, they are wildly different than they actually are now. The idea of shaking hands and physical touch doesn't actually happen very much. But one of the things that's really, really different that sort of catches my attention or that I'm thinking about in this moment is actually the way that conversations or interactions with people end. Instead of saying goodbye or see you later or so long, they say, be well. And I sort of think that's kind of funny, and I like that, but it catches my attention because of our scripture lesson today. So let's tuck that idea of be well in the back of your minds, and let's get into it. Now, this passage that we have, if you may have noticed when I, I stated what the various passages were going to be or what the passage was going to be, there's a little jump in the scripture. We skip over about five or six verses, which in itself is not a humongous situation. But admittedly, we have these two different sections of the reading that may just seem like they're not all that connected. And I scratched my head just a little bit when I started working with the passage this week in as thinking about that, of what does this first part have to do with the second part? But they're both good, so, you know, let's think about it. Now, when things pick up, a little bit of the earlier narration kind of points us to the idea that Jesus is probably in or around the community of Capernaum, which was an important, bustling, busy, busy city on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. We don't know he's in Capernaum, but it stands to reason that he probably is. And the first thing that we have as things pick up is his call of one of his disciples known as Matthew. Now, we know Matthew to be a tax collector, and that's where Jesus finds him sitting at the tax booth. And this is one of the reasons why it makes sense that he probably is in Capernaum. Now, with Capernaum's location on the sea, and it's also the meeting point of two different trade routes, it would have been important to the Romans because it was also a taxation route. And that's probably why Matthew had this tax booth that he was sitting at, so as travelers passed by, he could charge them taxes. Now, here's the deal about tax collectors, if you've never heard me talk about this before. In the Jewish culture at that time, the tax collectors, even though they themselves were Jewish, were considered to be sinful traitors because they took advantage of their fellow countrymen to make money to then also fund and funnel a lot of that money, not all of it, but a lot of that money onto the Roman oppressors. Tax collectors were not well thought of. But as Jesus is walking along, he sees Matthew. And if this sounds familiar, maybe it sounds like the call of the other first disciples of Peter, James, John, and Andrew that Jesus encountered. And he says, follow me. And something about this invitation to follow resonated with those four guys. And it also seems to resonate with Matthew. And Matthew jumps up, he leaves his tax booth, and he follows after Jesus. From here, we find Jesus sitting down at dinner, not only with Matthew, but with a whole slug of Matthew's cronies, all of these tax collectors and sinners. They're all sitting down together. Now, in that culture, this would have been considered to be a big 
social faux pas for Jesus, who was apparently a rabbi, who was apparently kind of an important guy. He was a religious figure of sorts, and it did not sit well with the other religious elite because he is breaking all the rules of social decorum by sitting down not only with tax collectors but with sinful people. But Jesus does not care. He welcomes them. He associates with them. He breaks bread together. And some commentators or some scholars even think that this might be his house that he's invited them into, which heightens this whole thing that much more. Jesus is all about this association with these individuals. But the religious elite, who we hear to be Pharisees in this case, they are not big fans of it, and they begin to criticize Jesus, not to him, mind you, but to his disciples. Why does your teacher, why does your rabbi, why does your master sit down and associate with tax collectors and sinners? But of course, Jesus, being Jesus, picks up on it, and he says, those who are righteous, those who are well, have no need of a physician but those who are sick. And then he says, learn this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now that statement right there, when we hear that from Jesus, that sort of clicked in my brain and began to point just a little bit at why maybe that passage is connected up with this other portion of the passage, this other portion of the story. And a time that I tend to call the twin healings or the twin miracles that happen sort of in tandem with one another. Now, that particular story in which we hear about Jesus raising a girl from the dead as well as the healing of the woman who had been bleeding, this is actually a pretty important story that's present in three of the four Gospels. It shows up in Matthew, it shows up in Mark, and it shows up in Luke. Now, here's the thing that's kind of funny about this. I've been around Underwood for a while, and I realized for whatever reason, as the lectionary goes around its three-year cycle, I have never, ever focused in and preached on Matthew's version of it. I've covered Mark, I've covered Luke, never Matthew. And I just thought that was kind of funny, but it was also interesting as I did the study and the background work and all the stuff that I tend to do in advance of a sermon, as I got to thinking about some of the differences that are found from Matthew's version compared with the other two. But here's the deal, and let's talk about this story just a little bit. As the story picks up, we hear that this ruler, now he's named Jairus in the other stories, he's actually not named here in Matthew, but this ruler comes up to Jesus. We assume he's probably a Jewish leader, and in fact, our our text even indicates he's a leader of the synagogue, and we hear that in the other passages as well. But here he's just called a ruler. But he comes and he prostrates himself before Jesus. He humbles himself, even though he's an important person for whatever reason. My daughter has died, but come and lay hands upon her that she might live. And Jesus is like, sure, that sounds good. Let's go do that. And as they are going, then we have the interruption that happens with this woman This woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, we don't know exactly what her ailment is, but because of this ailment, she's got a lot going against her. And she is seeking healing. She is seeking to be made well, and she believes that Jesus can do something about it, just as the leader believes that Jesus can do something about his issue. I think both of these people are seeking mercy. They are seeking favor. They are seeking intervention for their situation from the divine, from the one who is also God, the man who is also God, the one who has healed over and over and over again, who they have, the reports have gone out. They know who this guy is. They know what he is capable of, and they desire this mercy. Maybe, just maybe, he will show me mercy. I think both of them have that in common. 
Now, again, as they are going, as Jesus is following along after the ruler, the woman comes up to the crowd and she says, all I have to do is touch his cloak and I will be made well. And it happens. Now, this woman, she's been bleeding on and on and on for more than a decade. She's got a lot going against her. Now, for one, physically, it would drain her and, and it would take away from her life of fullness just because of the physical reality of her bleeding. In addition, her wound, whatever that is, her ailment, whatever exactly it is, would make her ritually unclean, which would make her, which would shun her from society, maybe even casting her out of her community. All of this hinders her life of fullness, and that's what she desires. She desires not only to be made well physically, but to be made well socially, all of the above. And she believes Jesus can do something about it. Now, as she touches his cloak, power goes out of him. He turns, he sees her. He says, take courage, daughter. Your faith has made you well. She is healed. Now, from here, they continue on. And he continues following the man. Now, whenever I think about this story, when I think about this ruler, and in particular, I think about the other two versions out of Mark and Luke, I think there must be some urgency, but I find myself wondering if, if it might be a little bit different here. Now, here's one of those differences from Matthew's version to the other two. In the other two versions, when he approaches Jesus, he says, my daughter is on the verge of death. She is sick, she is dying, but come that she might be saved, come that she might live, come that she will not die. And I imagine the urgency of that man, especially when we have the interruption of this woman who, who, who grabs Jesus' attention and takes his attention away from the task at hand, he must just be tearing his hair out. But here in Matthew, it starts off a little differently. Here in Matthew, we hear that his daughter is already dead and he knows it when he approaches Jesus. My daughter has died. And what isn't said, but I think it's present in the man's intentions, I believe, Lord, that you can show mercy on my family. You can show mercy on my daughter. Come lay hands upon her that she may live. When they reach the house, she's dead. There's a big commotion there. That was common at the time. People do not believe that Jesus can do anything about this. The girl is dead. And when you are dead, that is it. Admittedly, there is nothing in the scriptures prior to this moment especially in Matthew's gospel, that gives any indication that Jesus is able to raise people from the dead. He hasn't done it before. He hasn't even talked about it before. But the man believes, the ruler believes, that this man who is also God is able to do something. And maybe, just maybe, the mercy of this man will be shown. The compassion of this man will be shown. The power of this man who is also God will be shown. And my daughter may live. Now, Jesus does just that. He puts all the people outside. He takes the girl by the hand. He raises her up. He raises her back to life. The man who is also God has shown mercy, has shown care, has shown compassion for the situation that these two different individuals find themselves in and does something about it. And they are both miraculous moments. And that should give us hope that Jesus is able to overcome not only sickness, not only wounds, not only ailments, but even death. 
And God will show that again in the resurrection of Jesus himself overcoming the power of death. So what does it mean to be well? What does it mean given these two examples? Does it mean that Jesus or that God or the divine or whatever we want to say has the ability to overcome physical ailments? Does it mean that God is, over to able, is able to overcome that which excludes us? Yeah. And does it even mean that God is able to overcome the power of death? And it seems yes. So maybe being well is any of those things, but maybe it's something different as well. I thought a lot about this, especially in light of a lot of different situations that are going on within our congregation, within our community. Individuals who maybe really, really hope for a miracle as they're within their own lives or within the lives of loved ones. And what does it mean to be made well? Does it always mean to be made physically better? Maybe yes, but sometimes maybe not. And the promise of the gospel, the promise that we see in our story today is that Jesus, God, the divine, holds power even over death. But here's the reality. Every single one of us will experience death. That's the, the nature of our reality. That's the truth of our reality. We know this to be true, even if we don't like it. And sometimes I think it's true that being made well actually lies on the other side of death. In every single life, eventually death wins. But the promise of the gospel the promise that we see in today's story, the promise that we find again on Easter when Jesus is raised and walks out of the tomb, the promise that we find is that we have a God who can and does do something about death. Death doesn't get the last word. God does. And the promise of the gospel, the promise that we have each been given is that the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the interest of God looks to every single one of us, even through death. And so maybe, just maybe, the promise that we have each received through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the claim of God upon each one of us as beloved child, is that ultimately, ultimately, in the eternal sense, whatever this world holds for us, whatever turmoil we may be going through, God does take interest. God does care, God does show mercy, and that ultimately every single one of us will join with Jesus in a resurrection like his so that we may ultimately be well. Amen.